hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. I'm often asked, how is it that my doctor knows so little about menopause or sexual medicine? The answer is, there's very little time devoted in medical school to menopause. There's equally little time devoted to sexual medicine. At best, an hour or two of instruction. And in my six years running the Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, there were no more than a handful of students who rotated through the clinic. And when they did, it was usually just for a day or two. It's not that students aren't interested. They're very interested. It's just with the number of required hours that need to be spent in other areas, there's simply no time in the standard medical school curriculum. Well, a Chicago medical student decided to take matters into her own hands. Three years ago, Rush medical student Jennifer Romanello contacted me and asked if I would be the faculty advisor for a group of medical students that wanted to independently learn more about sexual medicine. And with that, the Medical Student Forum on Female Sexual Medicine was born. In addition to educational activities throughout the year, the forum hosts an annual symposium that's attended by medical students from all over the country. This year's symposium took place last week, and almost 400 medical students voluntarily gave up a Sunday morning to hear experts from around the country talk about reproductive and sexual medicine. The theme of the seminar was Sexual Medicine Across the Lifetime, and the students had lectures on all aspects of female sexual response. I moderated a session on reproductive rights and health equity. The speakers were so phenomenal that I asked them if they'd be willing to share their talks on my podcast, and they both agreed. The first talk will be given by Dr. Melissa Simon, and the second, Dr. Fenwa Milhouse. This is a rare opportunity to hear two nationally recognized experts, and while I will briefly introduce them prior to their talks, please read their full bios in the program notes. And while the lectures that you're about to hear are directed to medical students, their messages are relevant and of interest to everyone. I mean, honestly, better than any TED Talk I've ever heard. It also gives me great hope for future doctors, knowing that they have an interest and exposure to this kind of information. And Dr. Simon will be coming back on my podcast next month for an in-depth discussion. So if you have any questions or topics you'd like her to address, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Dr. Fenwell Milhouse was my guest on episode 26. That link is in the program notes. But I'm also going to have Dr. Milhouse come back so we can do an in-depth conversation about incontinence, which is one of her areas of expertise. So welcome. Welcome to the Medical Student Forum on female sexual medicine. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm honored, honored to be the forum's faculty advisor. And I'm once again impressed by the hard work of this completely, completely student-run organization, which has resulted in hundreds of attendees at this conference and an impressive lineup of world-renowned faculty. So please read the full bios, which you have in your brochure. 
Our first speaker that I'd like to introduce is Dr. Melissa Simon. Dr. Simon is the Vice Chair of Research in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. She has received numerous awards for her substantial contributions in health equity, including her recent election to the National Academy of Medicine and the Association of American Physicians. Today, Dr. Simon will be addressing recent legislation that has resulted in the most fundamental reproductive rights being taken away from women across the nation. This is a topic that's near and dear to me, and I'm aging myself, but I want to mention that when I was a medical student, I not only celebrated that women finally had access to a safe and legal abortion, but I actually worked at the first legal abortion clinic in Chicago. So here we are, the clock set back more than 50 years. So take it from there, Dr. Simon. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Stryker. That was very kind of you. And thank you all for joining us today. I'm very excited to um, give you a little words, a few words, uh, and I'm happy to stay on for questions for the panel. Um, I'm going to share my, start my slides. So I am going to intersect equity with this topic because it is my area of expertise, but it is also, and I don't want to overlap with with the next speaker, um, but this is about equity. This is all about equity, reproductive justice, right? So again, like was mentioned earlier, I refer to women, but um, recognize that other individuals also have abortions, seek abortion care um, and contraceptive care, et cetera, um, uh, including some transgender men, non-binary and gender conforming person, non-gender conforming persons. So reproductive justice uh, is the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children and parent the children one has in safe and sustainable communities. It's the complete physical, mental, spiritual, political, social, and economic well-being of women and girls. It is without doubt that policy impacts health all levels. It's really right. And that policies that relate to health disproportionately fall on those who are less resourced, marginalized, oppressed, and minoritized in the United States. The phenotypes we see of in the U.S. of pervasive health inequities consistently showcase across racial and ethnically minoritized populations over centuries. And about three quarters of abortion seekers in the United States are from low-income backgrounds. And globally, if I frame this globally, the World Health Organization estimates that over 73 million induced abortions take place worldwide every year. Six out of 10 pregnancies globally end in induced abortion. 97% take place in developing countries in unsafe abortion is the leading cause of maternal mortality. Uh, The June 2022 Supreme Court ruling in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization overturned the longstanding constitutional right to abortion and eliminated federal standards on abortion access established by earlier decisions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This decision left it up to each state to establish laws protecting or restricting restricting abortion in the absence of the federal standard. But this decision was not based on standard of care medical practice. Okay, maybe federal standard, but not standard of care. Nor science, nor empathy related to about half, a little over half of our country's population, which can experience pregnancy for each in the, each of those individuals of that half of our population for about 30 to 35 years each. So if you just think about that mind-blowing, extensive impact on any 
any part of healthcare, but also sexual um, uh, medicine is, it's just mind blowing. Um, so we know that state laws currently range from complete bans of abortion with criminal penalties to abortion protections that include funding for clinics and legal protections for clinicians. You know, in Illinois, we're considered a safe haven state. Um, uh, and we, you know, have, uh, legal and, and, and available availability of abortion and contraceptive care. But um, because the states have had policies in place prior to the Dobbs decision, that's really what happened. But now we have more protections in place um, uh, due to recent policy passes uh, policies in uh, Illinois. Um, Another group of states do not have any explicit laws either upholding abortion rights or prohibiting abortion and access to services, and that's mixed in these states. But finally, the Supreme Court ruling um, really in several states have already outlawed the provision of services, like I said earlier. And right now it's about 17 states had policies in place prior to that decision um, to outlaw abortions as soon as that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Many of these states are in the South and has large shares of Black and Latino women and, and the in the areas of the plains in our country, which have large indigenous populations and the Midwest. Oops, to, to obtain uh, an abortion, women in states that prohibit abortions you know, have to travel outside of the state. Um, and that really falls disproportionately on, on barriers to access to care and people who experience those barriers to access to care. And many people uh, of color, minoritized people and people who just have been oppressed um, due to our structural racism and discrimination in this country. Um, it's a slippery slope of loss of health autonomy, right? And so when we think about inequity, it's really important to understand that when I'm talking about in, in, inequity, um, we're, we're thinking about, let's think about a tree. And this is an organic tree. And, by, and don't get me wrong, these inequities and these structures and processes that got us to this place of overturning Roe and got us to this place of health and um, of health inequities really is, under, is, is human on human, right? But this tree, so if... The tree or the structure, the process, the ruling, the Supreme Court ruling is fundamentally bent and actively favoring some people and actively disadvantaging others in the upper left hand corner. Then when we say we're still equal, you know, you can go fly to get your abortion in another state. Um, that presumes that the structures like access to care are not bent right and the upper right hand corner that equality um uh, argument is really null and void because the structures, processes, practices, and all these layers of access and barriers to care are favoring some and actively disadvantaging others. And so those others will be left behind. Um, lower left-hand corner in an equity framework, we would say, yes, the trees, these processes are fundamentally bent and we have to do a better job of, of making policies that aren't going to, you know, um, uh, disadvantage half of our population, people who can get pregnant, right? Um, and so we have to give a different lift and acknowledge and create policies that people can experience that that allow everybody to achieve health, to get the right health care, right? Abortion is still medically um, a sound health care um, to everyone in order for everyone to uh, to be healthy in our country. 
And justice in that lower right-hand corner is really asking these questions that I'm asking, those hard questions. Why is the darn tree bent in the first place? And all those processes that are involved is really important to understand that. We acknowledge that there's uh, centuries of deep and um, of oppression, slavery, and racism in our country. We know that we are emerging from, we're still in a pandemic, but we are emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic, which exposed existing health inequities and exacerbated them across the board. And that syndemic of disinformation and distrust is further fueling these health inequities and further fuels the issues around the overturning of Roe and how it relates to, to women's health and sexual um, medicine as well. Um, like I said, maternal mortality disparities are widening in, widening in this country and a huge, a large driver of, of, of maternal mortality is indeed at lack of access to abortion and lack of access to safe, um, to, uh, uh, to family planning methods that can help people space out their, their pregnancies. 80% of maternal deaths are avoidable. This is egregious and terrible in our country. And so when we make policies and make decisions at the Supreme Court level, but also give care, we have to acknowledge there's two different cliffs, right? There's people um, like the orange, yellow people on one cliff that have all these protections in place to prevent them from falling off, right? Or they have an ambulance access. And there's people who are depicted by the green figures in that figure on another cliff that start at the edge of the cliff and don't have any protections. And those are our systematically excluded and oppressed um, persons in our country. And really, this is all driven by systemic um, uh, systems of oppression, including systemic racism. And so, one of the big things of the overturning of Roe on, on sexual medicine and women's health in general is really you have to understand access to care, right? You have to understand that there's many domains. Access to care is not just about having a health insurance card or access to health insurance. It's actually about um, the left-hand corner, quality and consistency of care, receipt of guideline concordant care. So in states that ban abortion, guideline concordant care, you have to give pregnancy options counseling. I'm a OBGYN, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. You still have to understand the options and, and know how to provide pregnancy options counseling to those who can get pregnant and those who are pregnant. Um, and that shouldn't matter if you're in Texas or in Illinois or somewhere else, right? Um, but these laws, these, this ruling then triggered laws that are from politicians who don't have, uh, medical training, um, almost all, very few do. And, and it's really driven by people, um, who just want to maintain their jobs because they know that voters will vote on this issue, right? And so, when voters vote on an issue, politicians are going to make policies regardless of standard of care clinical practice. Um, in the lower left-hand corner, we also have a lack of diversity in our healthcare workforce, right? So trust, like I said, COVID exacerbated this distrust. Well, trust is huge. And if you don't have people who look like you, who understand the cultural nuances and, and all the, the struggles, um, it's really hard to then um, go and interface with the healthcare system. And that's the same in the lower right-hand corner as well. We have biased Biased mental models, experience of maltreatment, experience of bias, discrimination, and racism. And that's handed down through through generations, through decades, right? Over decades. Um, 
And, you know, if your sister, loved one, friend was discriminated against in a particular hospital, then you're not going to go there and trust them to give you accurate information about abortion, abortion care and reproductive health. Right. Um, and then we've got all the costs, the out of pocket costs and then in the middle and then um, poverty, language, health literacy. What's really important and, and not talked about much. I, I've been in the media a lot last year about it is that. You know, uh, when Roe was overturned, the the um, disinformation about abortion care, access, knowledge, safety just went out of control, spiraled out, spiraled out of control. And while although Facebook and YouTube and, and other platforms say they edit some of the egregious disinformation around medical uh, medical information, um, that's not true in other languages. In Spanish, even in Spanish in our own country, the, 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 there is a huge amount of disinformation around abortion and, um, and, and promulgating, uh, stigma, fear and inaccurate, inaccurate information as well. Um, so that's really scary in this country. Um, and it's happening as we speak. Um, so, you know, these intersecting systems of oppression, along with overturning a row and the COVID pandemic, just exacerbated everything, right? That the intersectionality drives those inequities and drives the concern about what where we are with respect to sexual medicine and and people who um, should be receiving care. Um, and also acknowledge we have to acknowledge that people in these populations that are minoritized or oppressed make up more frontline worker positions have which have less benefits right you have less flexibility when you're a frontline worker or you're you know an hourly worker part-time a migrant farm worker any of those positions don't have benefits so then you have even worse access to care in anything related to sexual medicine um and then let alone just think about if you um, do get pregnant and, and you can't in the, uh, keep the pregnancy in whatever circumstance you're at, trying to travel outside of the state is almost impossible if you don't have resources or a job that will, you know, not will, will give you time off, right? Many people fear getting fired for taking a few hours off to go to just an annual exam visit. Um, and then um, uh, unemployment rates, we're very high, and we know in our country, uh, employment is almost always linked to healthcare insurance. So when people lost their jobs, they lost their benefits. And so how do you even get access to care with no benefits? And that's any kind of care, let alone abortion care. And then you have the fear, right, of, of getting COVID-19 that happened, and then telehealth visits created even more um, divide for um, patients who have less resources, more rural, um, frontier uh, living um, patients. Uh, so again, these all these concerns are really important because during the pandemic, people got less prenatal care in, in some areas, those who were minoritized and, and they had less opportunity to receive pregnancy option counseling. Right. So then you've got the overturning of Roe on top of that, which made it even harder. Right. And then you've got food insecurity, um, child maltreatment um, increased, uh, intimate partner violence increased, substance use increased, depression and anxiety and suicidality and suicide completion in increased, and there was limited social support. And we are a 
emerging from all of this confluence of things. And so therefore that's why this, this, this overturning of Roe is so impactful on any type of women's health, let alone sexual medicine. Um, and so we really have to take a broader perspective that includes the essential role, that privilege of being able to take control over when someone decides to be pregnant. That's a privilege. If you have the ability to decide when you get pregnant and how often you get pregnant, that is an inherent privilege, right? Um, dealing with, you know, with all of these things, it's really important to understand that. And when over half our country's population can potentially become pregnant for about one third to 40% of their lifetimes, why is the full spectrum of safe, well-studied, effective care that is part of pregnancy care banned or severely restricted by about half of our states now? Um, that's crazy. Why do we allow politicians to utilize abortion as a voting strategy for their career benefit? And the politicization of abortion causes creation of policies that directly affect abortion access and legalization. So I'm getting to the end of my talk, but civic engagement's critical. I hear a lot of my colleagues, unfortunately, it makes me sad, um, say, oh, I'm not political. I, I don't, I don't want to do this, right? Um, you know, our own institution, you know, didn't want to support voter ER, which is a, to, to help, uh, patients sign up to be registered to vote. Not about alleging to one side or the other. It's about voting. You've got to engage. Everyone has to engage. If you have the ability to vote and the right to vote, you need to use it. Um, and then combating disinformation, like I said, especially in other languages, is is really important and building trust with the healthcare system. I mean, we've earned the distrust of people in our country, in our healthcare system, and our scientific workforce. And we've got to work really hard to get it back. And so what's really interesting, you all should know, that Healthy People 2030, which is from HHS, will actually include as an indicator now increasing the number of voting age citizens who vote as a health indicator. That's That's crazy good. It's that's like amazing. So here's some food for thought as I conclude. We need to find our way back to depoliticizing the A word abortion. There is a well-established communication research that the moment that voters decline to vote based on abortion rights is the minute our politicians will stop creating policies that promulgate harm impacting over half of our country's population. Plain and simple, abortion is health care. It is safe. It is well studied. It is a very common procedure, more common than any other surgical procedure done in this country. Um, and medication abortion also is super safe. Um, and state mandated like anti-bias training for health healthcare providers to help with this, it has to be studied because we still don't know, right? And um, impending policies regarding affirmative action and diversity will impact not only our scientific workforce, but our clinical workforce potentially. So that's coming down the line in the Supreme Court too, which could add to further promulgating health inequities if we don't have a diverse workforce, right? Um, and then moving forward out of this pandemic, how will um, our workforce be impacted, right? A lot of people stepped off the, the bandwagon for being a healthcare provider or a scientist. And then things about like Catholic hospitals. Catholic hospitals govern about one in six acute care beds across the United States. And about a little over half of all births are in Catholic hospitals are to women of color, and in New Jersey, as an example, 80% of births in Catholic hospitals in New Jersey are women of color. 
we do not know how this will actually impact and play out on care and in options counseling, right? Uh, in this circumstance where the health autonomy of people who can become pregnant and their healthcare team is in jeopardy, we have to relentlessly and without political influence defend our patients' clear autonomy along with abiding by our Hippocratic oath to first do no harm. We may be equal, but we are separate, especially when the we are the people who can become pregnant. Overturning Roe is not even close to what we learned in civics class. And those of us who can become or who are currently pregnant are not included in the U.S. government standard of, of this decision of the people, by the people, and for the people. Here is my contact information, and I'm going to hand the baton to back to Dr. Stryker. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, thank you, Dr. Simon. I personally have so many questions, but I will hold them. Dr. Fenwa Milhouse. Dr. Milhouse is a urologist. She's a pelvic floor reconstructive surgeon. And if you do not follow her on Instagram and TikTok, I, I highly recommend you do so. It's an extraordinary example of how you can give good information to the public in a fun, informative, but medically accurate way. So kudos for that. Um, she was also one of my favorite guests on my podcast. So you can check out that episode, which was really terrific. And yeah, you know, we're all here today. I mean, you're here today because just as Diane Simon was talking about, we are all aware of this enormous disparity in terms of research and education when comparing male sexual health and women's sexual health. But beyond that disparity, some women are even more marginalized and particularly underrepresented. So today, Dr. Milhouse will be addressing health equity, specifically in female sexual medicine. So welcome, Dr. Milhouse. Thank you, Dr. Stryker. That was a beautiful introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure uh, to speak to you all today. I'm going to go straight to my presentation because I think I'm right at 20 minutes. So bear with me. So I'm going to be, thank you all uh, again for allowing me to speak on this subject. Um, I intentionally want to focus uh, on black vulvas in this presentation, black vulva owners and sexual medicine, because this country has a particularly grotesque and unique uh, relationship with its black citizens. And racism has been woven into every fabric um, of this nation and it affects it's black citizens uh, and virtually every aspect of their lives. Um, unfortunately, medicine has been a part of or a key perpetrator, I should say, of racial inequities, as our last speaker, Dr. Simon, has said that we have basically earned our distrust um, as medical professionals. Um, in fact, medicine. Um, so now, even though I am even though I'm focusing on black vulva owners, I, I need to say that indigenous peoples um, suffer a lot of the same inequities and discrimination and to a um, slightly lesser extent, Latinx people as well. Uh, and so there are unique features of these three communities. Um, and for the sake of time, I want to focus on my community, um, black women um, who have uh, the greatest disparities when it comes to health. Lastly, I want to preface that I may, I will definitely refer to vulva owners as women during this presentation, but it is meant to be inclusive of vulva owners regardless of gender identity. So with that being said, um, being black is a risk factor for one's health. Ever increasing is this acknowledgement that racism, not race, is uh, the biggest risk factor for health care disparities. The CDC actually declared racism uh, a public health threat. 
So the objectives today are one, to highlight the current racial disparities in female sexual medicine, to define structural racism, uh, and to show how this influences these disparities. Our last speaker, again, kind of beautifully touched on that. Um, discuss the role of implicit bias and cultural competency in our relationship with our patients and how that uh, uh, imparts on the health inequities. And share ways, lastly, to leave us with real ways that we can promote health uh, equity in sexual medicine. Uh, the background picture, if you guys can see, um, is Dr. James Marion Sims. He is a, for a forefather in gynecologic surgery and also a notorious perpetrator, has a notorious record of atrocities against Black women. He basically used Black slaves um, uh, to perform a lot of the procedures and perfect a lot of the procedures um, and things that we uh, do in gynecology today uh, without anesthesia. Um, so Black, let's talk about what exists. Uh, so uh, there are higher rates of unintended pregnancies. This goes along with what our last speaker mentioned, the access to, you know, be it's a privilege to be able to control your reproductive, uh, you know, have reproductive rights. There's uh, much higher rates of STIs like chlamydia, gonorrhea and syphilis uh, compared to white women. Black women bear the brunt of a, the HIV, uh, HIV among all women in this country. We're twice as likely to have undergone a hysterectomy compared to white women. Uh, there's something called the Mississippi appendectomy. I don't know who coined it, uh, but it basically refers to the like, you know, the vast amount of hysterectomies that were performed on black women and girls um, as a way of kind of uh, sterilization and eugenics. And, and, and still to this day, black women are at higher chance of having a hysterectomy for non-cancer reasons. Um, the black black and Latina women begin to uh, may begin to have pre perimenopausal symptoms and experience more intense effects um, of menopause and have a longer transition period. Uh, but unfortunately, our least likely to be prescribed a hormone replacement therapy or HRT. So structural racism is the compounded and chronic inequity that exists in our society through interconnected institutions. It's in multiple institutions, interconnected and, um, and that, um, and have unequitable opportunities uh, and or discriminatory practices based on race. Structural racism directly shapes our social determinants of health, which I will talk about in a second. Uh, this exposes the marginalized people to unequal higher risk. So you're already marginalized in society, but you have a higher risk and unequal access. Okay. It's not just about, you know, do you have insurance or do you not? There's a more com complexity. What, where's your clinic located in your neighborhood? What hours do they operate? Do you, are you allowed to take off work or not? All of these things factor into access, leading to disproportionately unfavorable outcomes towards black bodies in particular. So social determinants of, of, of health are all of the things that we 
live our life in. It's where we are born, where we grow up, where we go to school, where we work, what's what is in our neighborhood, um, where do we play, uh, what um, uh, access do we have to healthcare and to other things. Um, and it is uh, shaped, and these things are absolutely shaped by the distribution of wealth and influence on all levels, locally to globally, okay? Um, and these are the most significant factors in healthcare disparities. Examples include housing access and systematic, like, redlining practices. What's that? What that means is there's been the systematic denial of various services by government agencies and private sector to Black neighborhoods or communities. Even though redlining is technically illegal, okay, its practices still are pervasive and persist. So an analysis in 2020 in I live in Chicago, I'm from Chicago, uh, in, in 2020 found that lenders invested more money in one white neighborhood, Lincoln Park, than they did in all combined, all of Chicago's majority black neighborhoods. They spent more money in one white neighborhood combined, uh, more than uh, the black neighborhoods combined. J.P. Morgan Chase lent 41 times more money to white neighborhoods in Chicago than black ones. That's absolutely going to affect what what access I have, where what my playgrounds look like. I lived on the south side of Chicago uh, during residency, and it's vastly different than the north side. There's a huge difference in the park density and park quality, for instance, and food options. Black communities tend to be in food deserts with limited access to nutritionist foods. And on top of that, um, there's a higher density of undesirable industries in minority communities. So controlled for income, Non-white neighborhoods face higher concentrations of liquor stores than do white neighborhoods. There's higher concentration of tobacco stores. Okay, according to the EPA, um, black Americans are 1.5 are exposed 1.5 times more to pollutants than white Americans. So this is obviously we're talking about social economic differences, but there are actual inequities that have been built in our society that are, are race um, based. So I'm going to uh, we've you know, I, I we could spend another 30 minutes talking about systemic uh, racism at institutions, but I need to move on. Um, literally, um, I want to talk about implicit bias and how it affects the outcomes of our patients, because this is woven into uh, the uh, healthcare uh, inequity and disparities. Because we live in a world that is Eurocentric, masculine, heterosexual, we are shaped by these dominant culture, societal norms and our own experiences. And none of us are immune from this. Implicit bias are, is subconscious. We, we aren't, we aren't uh, um, readily uh, aware of, of it. It's in our back of our mind. And these are stereotypes and attitudes that affect our understandings and influence our actions. They're not just thoughts. They actually shape what decisions we make and how we interact with patients and what we do. OK, that's very important to know. They're not just thoughts. This is pervasive. We all have implicit bias. OK, it's implicit because we are unaware of it. I already talked about that. No one is immune. We are products of our society. We've all been shaped. And even those with the best intentions are delivering. I say maybe, but are delivering inequitable care as a result of implicit bias unless we are proactive about it. OK, we must work to change our hidden prejudices. 
Bias affects our perception, which is going to affect our diagnostic ability. It's going to come out in our pa- in our communication with our patients and our cl- clinical decision ma- making. And this all affects our patients' um, outcomes. And bias has been shown to have negative infa- in effect on patient outcomes. We already know. Okay, we're at a female sexual health symposium. All right. This is like one of its kind because we know that women in general have been uh, marginalized. Just being a woman have been marginalized, especially when it comes to sexual dysfunction. And many women distressed by sexual dysfunction complaints don't seek medical help. Okay. well, our system is not only historically misogynistic, but it's very racist. So women of color. I have a double assault on their on our gender and our race. That's called misogynoir. Um, and so we physicians, for instance, we tend to um, we tend to refer to female patients in impersonal or emotional terms compared to male patients. Uh, physicians uh, tend less to the negative experiences of black patients than white patients. Um, there may be stereotypes of sexual promiscuity commonly attributed to black and potent and also Latinx uh, women. Stereotypes of ignorance about our bodies, of poor mothers. OK, um, and uh, this is why uh, our black and Latinx patients report a greater feeling of this gendered racism. So what ways do our implicit bias can show up in the treatment of female sexual dysfunction? Well, number one, black pain is just globally taken less seriously and treated less. There's multiple studies that show that black pain is not adequately addressed. This isn't just true for black women. This is true for men. Children um, are less likely to be treated adequately for their pain. Um, So this so uh, part of sexual dysfunction is 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 potentially treating patients with uh, sexual pain. And and if we aren't taking their pain seriously, that's going to impact um, their treatment and and propagate uh, inequities. Um, black patients report higher risk of feeling that their symptoms are being dismissed or invalidated. Um, we tell lies to ourselves that black women may be, be may be able to take pain better. Um, menopause symptoms may not be taken as seriously due to race, racist assumptions. Um, then there's these again, uh, there's the potential for black women to be hypersexualized or asexualized one or the other. You know, there's the Jezebel archetype, this uh, promiscuous, hypersexual, immoral black woman that's prop that's pepper perpetrated in film and music and TV. And then there's this Mamie archetype of this unattractive, usually older black woman who who has who's asexual and lacks the typical ideals of femininity. I truly believe that actually more common now in medicine is that we are asexualizing black women, particularly if they're older. Um, and, and, and then there are assumptions about the understanding. Black women may be seen as more uneducated and ignorant about our own bodies and assumptions about our affording certain treatments. And these may be some of the reasons why black women are less likely to be treated adequately. And then lastly, most mainstream health conversations around um, black women from their health workers tends to focus on birth control and sexual risk behavior and exclude sexual function uh, assessment. I put here black pleasure matters. Most conversations and current medical research. In fact, the research is 
almost entirely focused on the negative sexual outcomes in black women, increased risk of STDs, HIVs, unwanted pregnancy. And there is a paucity of research and conversation about black sexual pleasure and sexual dysfunction. So all of this kind of helps to, to create this um, ongoing cycle of inequitable outcomes and racial disparities. Um, I didn't speak about medical atrocities, but we all, I think, are familiar that that has shaped our trust that our patients come in with. And yes, um, we have earned the distrust that our black patients feel when they step into our doors. OK, um, so that's super important to 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 acknowledge and to recognize and so that brings me to cultural competency. Healthcare providers rarely give attention to the life context of our patients and how it shapes their decisions. Life context especially is especially relevant for sexual dysfunction conditions. Life context includes a, a, a bunch of things, socioeconomics, our st stigma that we walk into, any trauma, discrimination. And talking about sex for our patients takes a greater deal of vulnerability than talking, let's say, about their heart or their nose or, you know, something else talking um, it. This demands that we have more self-awareness and cultural knowledge on our part as medical professionals taking care of our ever increasing diverse patient population. Uh, you know, we have to think about the intersectionality that our patients walk into Uh so when we talk about race, but let's what but but there are gender identity and there's a, a gender a sexual preference. So now if you have a patient who is non-binary and a, 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 a homosexual a, a black patient vulva owner, you have a lot of things going on there that we have to take into account. I want to um, touch about how black women and their their relationship with sex is different. From white women. From a young age, we are subjected to a consistent message in this society. Inferiority, less feminine, less attractive, less desirable. I will share something with you. When I have a daughter who's 10 now, when she was four, she said, mommy, I wish I was white. Okay. You don't have you. And this is common. My husband and I talked about this. We said, we've all been there. Okay. There's a consistent message from day Z one on this planet that we are less desirable. These internalized inferiority and a sense of worthy worth uh, unworthiness absolutely affects how we uh, our sexuality um, and our bodies have been held captive by a misogynoir. Black women. Um, uh, I want to talk about religion. Religion is a big part um, not of every single patient, um, uh, but in general, a big part of black uh, community. Um, religion is largely how our ancestors survived being tortured through slavery. And the black church is seen as a lifeline for many in the black community. Um, I say this as a Christian church going black woman myself. Black women have been sexually oppressed by religion. OK, religion tends to be sexually oppressive. Um, and. Um, although there's a stereotype of sexual promiscuity that sometimes or oftentimes gets attributed to us, we generally tend to be more conservative when it comes to sexual experimentation, masturbation, for instance, sex toys, sex tech. And this may shape the conversations we're having as sexual dysfunction professionals with our patients. These conversations that encourage um, our patients to explore their bodies or involve experimentation, we need to acknowledge that we have to, we have to meet some patients where they are, 
Okay. Um, there is a ton, a, a, a large amount of conditioning of shame around sex. Um, and we have to meet patients where they are. And we have to factor in potentially religion being a big factor in our black vulva owners. Um, and lastly, unfortunately, black girls and women face higher rates of rape and sexual assault than white, Asian and Latinx girls and women. Um, you know, black women slaves were routinely raped and sodomized by their white slave owners. Um, we're not in slavery anymore, but 35 percent of black women experience sexual violence. Um, one in four black girls are sexually abused. Forty to 60 percent of black girls repent, report being subjected to coercive sexual contact by the age of 18. This affects our sense of self, a sexual agency, impacts our body's response to sex, okay? Um, our physical response to sex. It impacts our relationships with other sexual partners, body image issues. And because Black girls and women are the least protective individuals in our society globally, the lack of support and protection complicates survivorship around sexual abuse and assault. So lastly, what can we do to promote equity in sexual medicine? Well, we need to understand the role that sexual racism and mistrust uh, impacts your patient's health. Uh, tell the patient that you know that healthcare has failed them. Just acknowledging it, like say, hello, nice to meet you. I'm Dr. Such and Such. I I'm, you know, want to help you. And I, and I want to say, I, I know that, you know, there, there may, you may not trust me that medicine has failed you historically. I want you to know that I want you to feel seen and heard and encourage them to speak up and, and let your patients say, listen, if you don't feel seen and heard with me, please let me know. I think making that like opening that up will start to actually help patients to trust you because then they say, okay, wait a second, this person might actually get it. They're acknowledging that um, and get comfortable uh, with being uncomfortable about conversations regarding racism and discrimination and equity. Seek to understand the life context of your patients, what trauma, stigma, discrimination. Obviously, we're only we, we aren't superhumans. We may not be able to directly address these needs, but learning how that shapes their experience will will absolutely make you a better doctor for them and help them in their treatment. Um, explore what your biases are. It's imperative that you understand your own biases or you are propagating, you are propagating them. Okay. Take an implicit association test. Harvard has, has, has multiple it. Um, when you take one, you'll learn what your implicit, you'll start to learn what your implicit biases are. And it might shock you. You know, I took one and I was biased towards white women. I'm a black woman. I'm biased towards white women because I am a product of this society. Okay. And so then it starts to make the, um, the hidden, uh, uh, apparent. Okay. And you start to hear that voice in the back of your head. That's, that's, that's talking to you, that inner voice. When you start hearing that inner voice, it'll, that's how you speak to people, what you say to people, your decision-making. Okay. Um, and that will absolutely provide your patients with a better equitable experience. We have to pay attention to that and deliberately explore our inner voice and call it out when we are stereotyping our patients. Make sure your tone and your words aren't condescending. Allow the patient the opportunity to ask questions and make sure they understand and feel comfortable with the plan. 
Um, be more sensitive to cultural diversity. It's imperative that we have cultural competency training. It should be ongoing. It is not one time thing. It is ongoing. Our society is just getting more and more diverse. Cultural competency starts by showing interest um, and uh, and acknowledging and uh, differences and respecting those differences. And it's also about behavioral change. It's not just I'm aware you're culturally different. It's OK. How do how is my behavior going to um, help you feel seen and heard and 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 better interact uh, effectively with our patients and educate others. You've learned a lot, hopefully, by the end of the seminar. I need you to talk to your colleagues about this. It is not enough to sit here and listen and get everything for yourselves. Go out there and start talking. I think it's selfish and counterproductive to learn something here and don't talk about it and share it with somebody else. If you continue to remain silent, you are part of the problem. Okay. Now you can start to speak up. If you see a practice or policy in your workplace that you think is disenfranchising a sector of people, speak up. You can use your voice, challenge the systems around you. And lastly, I know I'm probably over time. We need to increase representation in research. Well, how do we do that? Because historically black patient, black women, we distrust healthcare. We especially distrust medical researchers. So we need to do more outreach to, to and where these women are. Go to where these women are. You have to understand them and go to where they are. You can't expect them to come to you. Okay, go to the hair care, the hair care salons uh, and the black salons and the churches. Okay, acknowledge the mistrust again of the scientific community among marginalized people. Be flexible. I think really intensive uh, study designs are going to be harder to recruit marginalized women. There may be um, health, uh, limited child care uh, uh, limitations, transportation limitations, financial limitations. So be flexible and having a diverse staff obviously helps because then the people, the, the women participants might feel that they are, uh, they feel seen by seeing somebody that looks like them. Systems do not maintain themselves. Even your lack of intervention is an act of maintenance. Every structure in our society is upheld by active or passive assistance of other human beings. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Milhouse. That was that was terrific. And what strikes me listening to you is, yes, you are speaking about medical care, but in, in terms of your approach to cultural competency and bias, forget medical care. This is just about life, about interacting as human beings in our world and in our communities. So these are messages that we can take well beyond the hospital and our office. So I, I thank you for that. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Fall!